And the answer is a fundamental difference. Uh, one is that the world has gotten much more serious about climate change. That is the animating reason for doing these investments. Back 15 years ago was some distant concern about climate change. It wasn't a societal concern, certainly in the United States, the way it has been in Europe. And there is no meaningful regulatory constraint to rub up against, which of course innovation actually works better when you have some constraints. Working with a blank sheet of paper is a terrible way to innovate. And having a, a strong stick like a carbon price in Europe, for example, or some sort of mandate or ban on coal, for example, in some parts of the world, that's a tremendous spur to innovation, to investment, and to come up with other alternatives that can help technologies leapfrog in addition to just funding cool tech, right? That's the Silicon Valley software model of funding. So I think this time there is the credible and actual regulatory and political and societal acceptance and of climate change and a desire to do something about it, and also to monetize it. If you look at the ESG movement, that is the Environment Social Governance Movement of Investment, there is a lot of money seeking green returns. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building Smarter Markets be the antidote? Hello, Vijay. Very glad to have you with us here today, and a welcome to Smarter Markets. Great to be with you. For the benefit of our listeners, I thought I would give a quick introduction. You're currently the new Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor at The Economist, where you spent nearly three decades covering politics, economics, business, technology, and innovation across energy, climate, and healthcare. And so I'm really looking forward today, given that broad perspective you've had, to really dig into a few of the interesting issues that we're seeing now in the markets. You know, going back with having three decades of The Economist, you covered the last attempt at a clean energy transition 20 years ago. Then we had the Kyoto Protocol from 1997 and the first development of compliance and voluntary markets with both the Clean Development Mechanism and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Those didn't succeed. We also had a period of very high oil prices that led to investment in things like shale and tar sands and renewable fuels that are still with us today. So what I'd love to start off with today is it seems like we're going through another attempt at a clean energy transition. And how do you compare what you're seeing today with what you were seeing 20 years ago? Well, that's a powerful question. I guess it gets right to the heart of uh, what's different this time, right? We've seen this movie before in some ways, and that's true. Uh, we have seen attempts to encourage, let's say, renewable energy. It was called the clean tech boom uh, back in the day, uh, something like 15 years ago. There were Silicon Valley luminaries like John Doerr, Vinod Khosla were leading venture capitalists that tried to encourage advanced cellulosic ethanol and technologies like that, and solar as well, it must be noted. And by and large, that particular investment boom didn't work out very well for the venture capitalists or the startups that were involved. It was a bit of a bust. And today we have something called a clean, uh, a clean tech is a dirty word, so now we call it climate tech which is a similar set of industries, a little bit different because it also includes maybe food and ag, that sort of thing. But um, 
And so it's very tempting to be skeptical as I initially was saying, all right, I've seen this movie before. What's really different here? And the answer is a fundamental difference. Uh, one is that the world has gotten much more serious about climate change. That is the animating reason for doing these investments. Back 15 years ago was some distant concern about climate change. It wasn't a societal concern, certainly in the United States, the way it has been in Europe. And there is no meaningful regulatory constraint to rub up against, which of course innovation actually works better when you have some constraints. Working with a blank sheet of paper is a terrible way to innovate. And having a, a strong stick like a carbon price in Europe, for example, or some sort of mandate or ban on coal, for example, in some parts of the world, that's a tremendous spur to innovation, to investment, and to come up with other alternatives that can help technologies leapfrog in addition to just funding cool tech, right? That's the Silicon Valley software model of funding. So I think this time there is the credible and actual regulatory and political and societal acceptance and of climate change and a desire to do something about it and also to monetize it. If you look at the ESG movement, that is the environment social governance movement of investment, there is a lot of money seeking green returns. Now we can have a separate conversation in a little bit about how much of that is bogus or poorly structured or greenwashing or, or lacking in transparency to put it in a, a mild way. But nevertheless, those factors did not exist in the earlier wave of investment and enthusiasm for clean technologies. So now we have the ESG movement, we have the regulatory environment, and as you said, the recognition that we need to move now as opposed to anticipating something much farther down the road, which is a little bit more the situation from the early 2000s. Do you think there are any other lessons that we should take away from what happened in the 2000s, either in terms of the types of technology or the, the role of government versus markets in the fostering of that innovation? Sure. We can keep digging into it a bit further, among other things, right? You know, one of the things I covered at the time was the Enron collapse as well as the role that Enron and others in the Texan cowboys of power trading uh, and, and gas markets that manipulated California's power markets when California deregulated its power system badly and led to massive power crises, ultimately led to the ouster of the governor at the time, Gray Davis, who was recalled, but also taught some useful lessons about both a blind faith in market forces that led to certain kinds of deregulation. It was held, for example, at the federal level, the CFTC was controlled by ideologues at the time and, and took a view that this area didn't need to be properly regulated, but also the importance of getting regulation right. That is the role of government is important. Even Adam Smith, if you go back to the guru of free markets, never argued for laissez-faire in everything. He knew that companies will tend towards oligopoly, right? He argued for a vigilant night watchman so that you don't have cartels and in a particular market like energy, like power, which are prone to concentration, it's easy to uh, have cartel power, either monopoly power or oligopoly power. You need to have a vigilant regulator. And that is one of the lessons that comes out of the California reform. And also you need to make sure that you don't uh, misguidedly force uh, your companies into short-term contracts, for example, banning long-term contracts and so on. California made that mistake back then. Europe today has repeated a version of that mistake in its natural gas markets, where again, uh, a certain kind of, uh, I would argue, sensible uh, desire to introduce market forces into its gas markets to get away from the traditional way of linking natural gas prices to long-term oil contracts. That linkage was always questionable, 
they really are different sorts of commodities, especially with liquefied natural gas taking off. You're beginning to see more of a fungible global market. But what happened was Europe didn't think ahead sufficiently. Um, and so you ended up with a marketplace in which it was excessively reliant on one supplier, Russia and Gazprom. We, we know that Putin is clever at playing games with market power, but ultimately reliant on the spot market for LNG, which doesn't lend itself to long-term contracts. And so it, Europeans are getting outbid by the Chinese and the Asians who want that LNG more, are willing to pay more for it, and for structural reasons we can get into, why they're able to pay more than Europeans. And so this is actually, I would argue, not a fault of the marketplace. The market's working as one would predict and expect it to. It's a fault of how deregulation took place. That is a failure of regulation, of proper regulation. And it does seem like Europe is creating quite a bit of climate news these days, in addition to the energy price spikes related to some of the movements that you've been discussing. We've also recently had the conclusion of the COP26, the Conference of Parties UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. Um, I really enjoyed the coverage that you gave to it on your podcast to a lesser degree. And now with COP26 kind of in the rearview mirror, what does the path forward look like to you? The UN process is a mixed bag. It's easy to criticize because it's messy, it's consensus-driven, it's slow, it appears to be going nowhere. It's easy to see the flaws in it, which are evident, especially because of all the factions and the lobbying that are involved. But I'm actually of the view that it's essential, that you cannot solve a global problem, an intergenerational problem, one that affects every corner of the world, 200 plus countries, unless you have everyone involved in coming up with some form of agreements on the solutions. Um, the analogy that works for me is to think about, for example, uh, world trade liberalization. Now, uh, though there's some economic nationalists now that want to put the borders up, broadly speaking, I think most reasonable economists and others would agree the world has benefited particularly the developing world from open borders, greater globalization. And we saw for years and even decades, protectionists fighting opening up of borders. We saw uh, negotiators go to something called the GATT round of uh, talks, G-A-T-T, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, and they banged their head against the wall year after year, make a little bit of progress on one sector or another. Ultimately, they were able to get the World Trade Organization and work on sector by sector liberalization. And, and there's still a lot more room to go. There's protection in agriculture or financial services. But ultimately, I think that that kind of model, and same thing we saw with the Soviets and the US during the Cold War on arms reductions and limitations on nuclear weapons, uh, there is a value to thinking long-term when there are long-term problems. And uh, this is about as long-term as you get. Carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere more than a hundred years, um, and we need to have solutions that will endure and that will both work quickly, but also be able to adapt over time to responding technologies, to responding conditions and new science. So I think that's why I support the UN process as flawed as it is. Right. And I think it's, it's great to have your insight into understanding what people should be looking for in order to judge whether we are making progress or not. Because it's easy to look and say, you know, to an outsider, when you look at the, the number of pledges that have been made, even with that, the UN projects that we'll see temperature rise something like 2.7 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So on the one hand, it seems like, well, we're not getting near where we need to be to limit temperature rise to the one and a half or two degree type targets. But 
you know, what's happening or not happening during COP26 that you look at and say, well, even though we're not there yet, I see that we're making progress and I can maintain some confidence in the process. So if we look at what are the actual levers by which we'll tackle the climate problem, I mean, there are big buckets we can look at. We can look at mitigation, that is reducing emissions in the first place. We can look at adaptation, how do you deal with when the problem happens and the sea level rises and your family gets flooded or your country is underwater and so on. And of course, we can think within that, with mitigation, there are efforts to deal with the actual sources of emissions that are big. Coal and greenhouse gases are a well-identified problem. We're having a hard time getting countries to agree to a phase out or phase down of coal. There was a, at the very last minute at this COP, an in intervention from India that has a lot of coal and doesn't plan to get rid of it anytime soon that prevented the world from agreeing to phase out coal. They wanted to phase down. And that small change actually means a lot because the, the carbon content of the coal in India, in China, in Indonesia, and a dozen other countries, South Africa, which gets almost 90% of its electricity from coal still, that can make almost all other attempts at climate mitigation irrelevant. And so we need to find a solution to get off of coal and onto perhaps natural gas as a bridging fuel if we can control the fugitive emissions problem of methane. Ultimately, of course, purely carbon-free or very low carbon forms of energy, be that renewables or possibly nuclear, although that too is a political problem, but it's not an engineering problem in my view. And it seems like at the there, there's always the tension between the developed countries and the developing countries. And when you look, I think with carbon, as you said, it stays in the atmosphere for hundreds of years. A lot of the developed countries have put a lot of the carbon that's in the atmosphere in the atmosphere as a byproduct of their own growth. And that tension between who's responsible for the damage that's been done versus you know who's going to pay, who's going to limit the amount of carbon that they release in the future, and whose economies are going to be slowed as an effect of that. How, how do you see those negotiations occurring between the, the developed and the developing countries? Is that the biggest sticking point or is that just one? You know, honestly, this was a much bigger issue a decade ago or 20 years ago when most developing countries, China and India, most prominently among them, would say they're, uh, the moral argument. And they're surely right that it was the industrialized economies, the U.S. most notably, but also Europe and Japan, that put the stock of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And it's morally reprehensible to demand that poor countries stay poor and their people suffer both the consequences of climate change as well as increased poverty and uh, or absent economic growth, lower economic growth, because it could not rely on the energy that was made possible by fossil fuels that the rich countries got rich from, right? So that was a clear-cut moral case. That's partly why we broke the logjam in the UN negotiations with the concept of common goals, differentiated responsibilities, right? So the world agreed we have common goals. We want to curb climate change, especially as the science became more secure over time and uh, more widely agreed what the consequences would be. It became pretty clear very few places on earth will benefit and no one can rely, no country can reliably benefit. Even Russia with potential gains for Siberia warming up has plenty to lose as well. And so it became clear that we need to have common goals, but that rich countries would take on stronger responsibilities, would go first, they would spend more, they would help developing countries as well through direct transfers of resources, but also technologies 
in multiple other ways, right? So that was that's pretty well agreed. Really, India is the most important holdout on that, and under particularly under Modi, the current prime minister has taken quite a strident stance. That's a bit of a throwback to the old positions. Almost all of the developing countries are singing from the same song sheet where they say, look, we can already see the effects of climate change and take South Africa as a great example, heavily coal reliant, but they have a, come up with a very aggressive plan for the national utility ESCOM to transition towards non-coal forms of energy, heavily reliant on renewables, but with a social dimension, right? Because a lot of people work in the coal sector, miners and others who are reliant on coal-related industries and mining-related industries in a country that already has, in parts of the country, 45% unemployment. You can't throw all these people out of work by shutting down coal and plunging the economy into chaos. That would be a greater offense and an injustice than the threat of climate change 10, 20, 30 years from now. And so they have a, a program for transition and clean energy development that the rich world agreed to fund to the tune of many billions of dollars because they were smart about it. They said, yes, we, we need to do this. We know we're part of the problem, but you need to help us. And here's a plan. And here's how we're going to help our ordinary people so that they're not unjustly affected. In fact, they can benefit from the transition by working in the renewables industries, getting training, communities can have development funding. So that's a model. And there are other countries, Philippines is looking into the same thing and others as well. The Asian Development Bank has some interesting financial innovations to for early phase down of coal plants. In return, they would fund and reduce the risk for investing in clean energy in those uh, Southeast Asian markets in that case. So I think there's a lot of innovation that comes from public-private approaches that really is the legacy of the COP26 that just ended. It sounds like countries have found a way to bridge that divide and move forward, which is terrific. I'm curious, though, what makes India a bit of a holdout right now, in, in your opinion? So there is a very strong sense that India has lots of very, very poor people, which it does, much more than China. China 20 years ago could claim this, but China had a miracle of public health and good public policy and economic growth by which, and they were perhaps the biggest beneficiary of globalization in being able to lift up their people towards the middle classes. So, you know, hats off for a success that they've been able to achieve. So it's much harder for China to play the, oh, woe is me card. On the other hand, there is a legitimate amount of subsistence poverty as well as energy poverty in India that needs to be addressed and is only right for the Indian government to care about first before they take on expensive new technologies or make grand commitments to shut down coal, which is the bedrock of their electricity power generation. At the moment, they don't have enough power generation capacity. They often suffer from blackouts. They have an unreliable grid. So when, when you're confronted with these sorts of problems and you need a lot of economic growth to keep the population even stable, never mind growing in income per head, that's really the first focus of the government. And secondly, there is an, they are very much in the, um, the moralistic view that this is not a problem that India created. And so if the world wants to go towards net zero, fantastic. Let's have a net zero world and we will be the country that goes over and you can cut extra so that we can get to net zero by you cutting an extra 20%. Why should we cut from our future budget when we didn't create this problem? And if you want us to do more, you pay us. They ask for a trillion dollars in resources, which of course is a crazy sum. No, no one's going to give the India a trillion dollars. On the other hand, the positive way to look at this for India to achieve its own economic growth and its own levels of prosperity that India wants for its people and the Indian people want, they need to dramatically 
improve their own energy infrastructure and growth potential, they could use a trillion dollars in private sector investment. And hopefully a lot of it will be in clean technologies. They've got interest in wind, they have huge wind and solar capacity. They, have, they could become a hydrogen superpower. They have uh, phenomenal resources to tap into for clean hydrogen. Given all of this, if they create the right kind of laws, regulatory regime, make it investor friendly, attract the capital, particularly foreign capital, but private capital to go along with smart government policies, then you could really see hundreds of billions of dollars certainly flowing to the Indian power sector and the Indian economy, lifting up India in the positive direction, as well as helping climate change. That certainly could. And we focus so much on this podcast on the role of investment and getting the dollars into the infrastructure that's required to build that next generation energy system that's both reliable, affordable, and low carbon, environmentally responsible. Over the past few years, you've written a lot on you know, some of the big trends that you're seeing in the world, and those have included and um, I'll paraphrase these poorly, so please correct me, but the idea that you've had a rise in economic nationalism, a uh, slowdown in the pace, or even a retrenchment in globalization. So in this, and you know, these trends have often been accelerated to some extent by the pandemic. So in a time when we need to be coming together more to solve these common problems, how do you see some of these other trends affecting that? It is a curious time in which you live, isn't it? Obviously, the first and foremost, we're thinking about the pandemic, but this is not a surprise. You know, I'm, it gives me no pleasure to say that uh, in a previous stint as our healthcare editor, I wrote a cover story 10 years ago predicting the age of pandemics and that we're entering an age. Um, at that time, there had been a virus that was dubbed the Mexican swine flu, and it was a politically incorrect to call it that, but it was a, a pandemic that originated, it appeared in Mexico City. And uh, thankfully, it petered out. It was not as, as uh, deadly as COVID, but the alarm bells were, were rung and lots of virologists and zoonotic experts that I spoke with at the time said, we have come to a phase in which globalization has connected every part of the world. Humans are encroaching on wild areas so aggressively in places like Africa, in Asia, where people live very close to their animals, um, that we're seeing a lot of mixing, a viral mixing between species and crossovers. Every year I was told two to three potential pandemics emerge of the potential to be the next Spanish flu. And we're just getting lucky, we're dodging bullets. It's just a matter of time. And sure enough, it took 10 years to get there, but uh, the world did not prepare, right? Um, and we did not learn the right lessons. We did not have adequate scientific, societal and especially public health and public education tools in our arsenal to deal with this pandemic. We've, we've not done well, in my opinion. Uh, we were rescued by some heroic science. And we could talk a little bit about how the transformation of innovation in health sciences actually has led to the kind of mRNA vaccines and other kinds of open access science that we've got. It's a real fundamental transformation in scientific publishing, scientific approach, scientific inquiry that could have some lessons for clean energy as well and climate, where we could do with a little bit less of the secretive IP oriented lab, you know, top secret labs coming up with something with a very financially driven model to one that could be seen as more of a public goods model of innovation. Uh, perhaps there's a role for that in some areas 
of clean energy and climate tech, particularly those that deal with adaptation or technologies that are mostly suited to emerging economies where uh, there's not a lot of um, uh, billion dollar rents to be made anyway, and there's not adequate innovation going into those areas, we might be able to see new models of innovation, I would argue, that would help deal with both energy poverty as well as the clean energy transformation and adaptation and resilience. I think that's an area where we can see a lot more innovation as well. I'm really glad you brought that up because you know, I was looking at your book you wrote a few years ago, uh, Need, Speed, and Greed, on the new rules of innovation. And I loved you know, the way you defined innovation as fresh thinking that creates something valuable and really took the emphasis off of you know, the particular invention or the particular process and on, let's just look at these things in a new way and create value. So you know, what role do you see these new rules playing in driving the innovation that's needed to meet the big challenge of climate change? So you're absolutely right to pick up on that point about moving away from invention alone, especially with the Silicon Valley model of clean tech invention we talked about a little bit before. It tends to focus on the founder, the the cool technology, often it's software. And so that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's suited to lots of things, but TikTok isn't going to solve climate change, right? So um, we need systems thinking, hard engineering, things that take a decade or more that require uh, maybe multiple skills, not just software. So you, you have to work across silos. You have to think about complicated partnerships and ecosystems transformation. Often, especially when you're selling into the electricity market, you have a commodity product basically that's peddled by utilities that work on a rate of return basis that are heavily regulated. They're not favoring innovation. They don't want to take risk on cool new things. They want to keep the lights on. That's how they're rewarded. In the old joke in the utility business, it's the only industry that's compensated for redecorating the chairman's office, right? Because it's a rate of return basis. And so their incentives are not the same as a lot of other markets. And so we have to think about innovation differently. And so the role of government, the role of partnerships, the role of, again, ecosystems thinking plays a lot more, is more important in thinking about energy. It's not fundamentally a problem about lack of cool stuff. Uh, it's fun, It's often policy. Uh, policies that are in place, incumbents, legacy incumbents that have strong positions in the case of, say, utilities. Uh, some markets that were uh, deregulated in the U.S., we had some problems like with California that did it badly, but you also saw much more innovation and exploration of things like real-time metering or, uh, let's say, vehicle-to-grid and some of the more uh, advanced concepts coming up in these markets, whereas some of the traditional vertically integrated utilities they really don't have a motivation to try new forms of distributed generation, let's say, or to encourage it because they have assets at play and it's a bit of a risk and it's a bit of a bother. Why bother? And so they might need a nudge. They might need uh, a regulator or some standards to keep and, and transparency and disclosure on how they're doing on climate and so on. So uh, I think that innovation works differently because this isn't a real market. People like to think about energy markets, but in fact, it's a heavily ossified, often heavily and balkanized marketplace with lots of multiple regulators and nimbyism and permitting uh, and so on. So I think that it's it's the classical simplified model of a free market doesn't work with energy. And do you see ways in which government might need to change that environment in order for businesses and companies to be able to innovate the way we need? Or is that expecting too much from, from the governments and the regulators? No, not at all. On the contrary, I think we need to have agility and we're seeing it in different parts of the world in different ways, right? And so when it comes to this, in the case of climate related kinds of 
energy markets. We see in Europe lots of interesting experiments with auctions, with you know government-funded venture capitalists. Uh, we see uh, specific kinds of carbon requirements. Emission trading, of course, is most robust. And now there's quite a serious carbon price in Europe, which is having an effect on the marketplace. They're considering carbon border taxes as a, a way of dealing with the leakage problem. And so you're seeing as an example, one part of the world, and even within Europe, there's a lot of variety. Different countries have different approaches. There, and all of these are good. Um, if you look at Chile, when it comes to encouraging a f technology of the future, hydrogen as a fuel, as an energy carrier, of course, our listeners are sophisticated. They'll know hydrogen is not an energy source. It has to be made from something, a primary form of energy like electricity. It's an energy carrier. But Chile wants to make that hydrogen of the future from its vast renewable resources they have among the world's best and cheapest renewable resource is found in um, Argentina and Chile. But Chile has both the innovation capacity and the regulatory framework to attract investment. Right next door, Argentina, with this, almost the same resources, is not getting the same kind of investment. So there's a classic case of side by side, the role of policy, a framework of ecosystem showing you why innovation is happening in one country and not in the other. And another big nudge that's occurred in the ecosystem recently has been the rise of ESG investing. And bankers, lenders, investors, stakeholders, employees really pushing companies to make net zero commitments and you know fund the innovation that's going to be required. What's your view on you know the impact that the ESG movement's having so far in driving innovation as opposed to getting commitments alone made? I don't think the ESG movement so far has had a net positive impact on climate innovation. There's a, re a couple of reasons why. One is definitional. It's not entirely clear that things that are called ESG are actually doing environmental good. And this is willful mischief to some degree, but also it's a crazy wild west at the moment where uh, huge amounts of money, I mean, the order of trillions of funds are being shifted over to ESG, but there's no commonly agreed standard as to what qualifies as environmental or carbon friendly or net zero. And so you're getting a lot of companies that are making statements, hoping to grab some of this ESG money and they're getting away with it. And also they're competing indices, whether it's Bloomberg or the FT. I mean, there's multiple standard providers and they don't agree on their definitions. And when you really dig into it, the world's biggest asset owner, of course, Larry Fink, he and his institution are huge in ESG and he's made some very important, powerful comments that have moved the industry towards embrace of ESG. But a lot of his funds still invest in oil and gas, for example which people would query, why is ESG money going into fossil fuels? I think that's a reasonable question. There's a reasonable answer to that too, but that's an example of the kind of confusion or lack of clarity and lack of agreement there is in this area. And secondly, a lot of the money that's held by not only BlackRock, but Vanguard and some of the uh, Fidelity, you know, the other big funds, they tend to be transactional, shorter term. And if you're going to really spur climate innovations Climate tech requires long-term capital, patient capital, the sort that you know Bill Gates is pioneering with some of his investments with other fellow billionaires that have put in money for 10 years and longer into numerous technologies, direct air capture, for example. It's gonna take a decade or more before we even know if it works very well and works economically. And so that's not the kind of money that ESG investors are putting 
funds into, nor should it be. If you think about it, this is grandma's pension fund, for example, or 401k. Do you really want, you know, your beloved relative's retirement money caught up in extremely high risk climate tech of the sort that the world needs to bet on? But it shouldn't be grandma's retirement money. It should perhaps come from some other kitty or uh, yeah, you get my point, right? So uh, it, it may not be suited. It's not the right sort of capital, risk capital to go into this kind of innovation encouragement. But if you look at it from an ecosystem perspective, what you're seeing is that there is a lot more risk capital, angel money, venture capital money, early stage that's coming into this in the so-called climate tech boom, that's appropriate. Meaning these are people who know the risks they're getting into and they also have longer timeframes now. And the new dif the difference from last time with clean tech is you're seeing mezzanine financing and you're seeing project financing and you're seeing the private equity firms coming in in quite a large way. So you have all of the big players, really, TPG, you have Brookfield, you have multiple other ones. John Brown, the former chairman of BP, is heading up one of these funds. Mark Carney is heading up one of these funds, the former head of the Bank of England. So a lot of poobahs commanding billions upon billions are coming in specifically for clean tech company investments, not generic ESG, you know, buying the index, but specific company investments, but later stage. And that's huge because what it does is it gives those venture capitalists an exit. It gives the, uh, you know, when you get to series D, series E, there are people there waiting in line to scale up. And when you want to get beyond your pilot plant to scale up to a hundred million dollar project that might be close to commercial size, well, now you can get bank financing from JP Morgan and Citi, which have put specific money into this. Amazon is an example. There are corporate funds as well, Microsoft, Amazon. They're not just putting uh, greenwashing statements out uh, in their puffy TV ads, they're doing that too. But by putting in billions into these kinds of specific climate tech investments, Amazon has made the company Rivian possible, for example, the electric van maker, because they funded them early on when they were just a glint in the eye of, you know, the uh, the IPO that's happening and, and people wanting cool electric pickup trucks. But they saw delivery vans as a, a, this is a company that could deliver it. But in addition to seed capital, they also put in an order for 100,000 electric vans. Now, there's no company, there's no venture capitalist on earth that can both give you seed money and guarantee you a market later on, right? It's only a company like Amazon, maybe Alphabet and Google could do that. But in this case, Amazon made that bet in effect, creating a market. And so we're seeing a very interesting kinds of changes in how climate tech is financed. That gives me some encouragement as well. Right. And that point of needing to not only funnel investment dollars, but create the market for what's being done differently is so important. And one area where, you know, that's occurring is with, you know, large corporations that under stakeholder pressure have moved to make net zero pledges and then are doing some of it through reduction of their own emissions, but then also looking for ways that they can participate in the, a voluntary carbon offset market where they can basically pay someone else to reduce their own emissions or to invest in new technologies that can take carbon out of the atmosphere and sequester it, whether it's through nature-based projects like reforestation or some of the, the newer technological projects that will likely uh, see which ones work and which ones scale over the next decade or so. So I'm curious, when you look at what's happening in the investment space and some of the development of this nascent carbon market. What do you see and how do you think about that in the context of you know what you saw 20 years ago? I'm deeply skeptical, to be honest. 
I see the intellectual case for why voluntary carbon markets can be helpful and why offsets can be a part of the solution. And so I don't have a problem with that. What I have the problem with is the actual devil in the details. What you're finding is that a lot of companies are making 2050 commitments to net zero or carbon neutrality or net negative in the case of, uh, I think, Microsoft and a couple of other companies claiming that they'll suck down more carbon than they've ever emitted in their entire history. And, you know, you see these very big boasts and claims. A lot of them are made on a timeline after the current executive team has will have retired and, and maybe even passed on to another world. And you don't often see a specific roadmap for what will be their capital commitments for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, or where you can see those capex numbers, which is, of course, disclosed to financial analysts in the annual reports and quarterly reports, you see that they don't actually match up with what is being promised, right? In the next three to five years, if you can't find any significant evidence of a change in capital expenditure patterns, and yet the company is claiming a massive reduction towards net zero, then what they're really doing is planning some magical improvements in efficiency, and then they're going to buy a bunch of offsets. And you say, okay, where are you getting these offsets? And then the, the answer becomes very vague. It's like, well, we, we have a very trusted and reliable consultant, and they're helping us find you know, nature-based solutions, or we have some very interesting projects, renewable energy credits we're investing in. Say, so really? Okay, well, tell me about how long is that tree going to stay in the ground? We have an era of wildfires in many parts of the world. What, ha- what happens when that project gets burnt down to the ground? Or Tell me about additionality, a term from the the negotiations at the United Nations process. The little patch of land that you preserve here with, you know, through your credit, how do I know the patch next door isn't the one that's going to be deforested by the palm oil plantation? And so how do we know this is additional to what would have been done? Otherwise, you're not doing the earth any good. And so never mind outright fraud as well, which is rampant in this marketplace. So there's no regulation. There's not really very good transparency. Now, increasingly, we are seeing third-party watchdogs, uh, companies using satellite tracking and, and better data. So I'm hopeful that we'll see some forms of rigor enter into this space. But at the moment, what I'm seeing is the price is extremely low. That's usually an indicator of quality. It's not worth very much. It's basically worth the PR value. If you were to see the true cost of removing carbon from the air. Look at uh, direct air capture, for example. A company like Climeworks, Microsoft, and some of the others that are willing to pay for this are willing to pay $1,000 a ton, massive amounts of money to pay down for the technology, to buy buy down the cost for the rest of us. Eventually, that may get $200 a ton, or they say $100 a ton, they and their competitors. We know it works. It's just it's not at scale. It's a very, very slow process of getting to scale. That's different from saying this forest will definitely be here for 100 years and you can take the credit for all of that. Uh, Yeah, I got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you to. And so it really does seem like on both the, the governmental side and the market side, there's a large question of will and willpower. Will the governments be willing to ratchet down the emissions reductions that are required? to ratchet down the emissions that they can do. Uh, So we don't, you know, as I said, right now, the pledges take you to something like 2.7. And are you even going to, you know, keep those pledges? It's a little bit like making a New Year's resolution to lose uh, 10 pounds without a plan and with a, a history of that does not lend credibility to the resolution. But I think it's also in the markets where, you know, much of what's driven the voluntary market so far has been stakeholder pressure. And will those stakeholders continue to put pressure on? And will they discriminate? Will they look at the difference between a high quality project that is meaningfully reducing 
carbon in the atmosphere and price that at $1,000 if it needs to be priced at 1000 or 100 Or will they simply say, well, that project is the same as you know the $1 credit project that really doesn't do anything but perhaps embellish someone's public relations uh, materials? So you know, I think we do have that, that large question of willpower going forward. And you know, you brought up earlier the situation in Europe, uh, in terms of you know the the spike in energy prices and you know how that maybe uh, I guess the is that a warning to us of soon after the energy prices took off, you saw the UK bringing its coal plants back online as an example. So when push comes to shove, it seems maintaining that willpower in the face of higher energy prices is going to be a great challenge. And I'm curious your thoughts on how do we navigate this path of removing carbon from the atmosphere, paying uh, for those projects, paying for the new technology is going to be expensive. And the world has become accustomed to lower price, reliable energy. How do you see those tensions being resolved or not? You're right. This is a huge problem. We saw this with the energy crisis that parts of the world are going through, most notably Europe at the moment, because of that uh, natural gas crunch. That's partly why Britain had to turn back on its coal plants to keep the lights on when delegates came to Scotland for the COP summit. Uh, A great humiliation for a country that's trying to lead the, the low carbon brigade. And we see in Europe, part of the reason for this concern is granny may freeze this winter because of low natural gas stocks, right? That was a great concern, created a political crisis. One bad outcome would be that the tension between keeping the lights on and having reasonable prices for consumers versus stepping on the gas for aggressive push ahead on clean tech and and expanding renewables, low carbon technologies, that tension will explode into political tension, ultimately a political backlash. It may lead to populism. I think we're already seeing strains of that in some parts of the world. And we're seeing that attitude of refusal to accept some of the costs of transition is already evident. Some of the ways through the impasse, which is really your question, I think that a more grown-up attitude amongst amongst the environmental community and progressives, I think acknowledging that you can't simply demand a massive expansion of renewables without acknowledging there are intermittency questions, that there are questions about the need for baseload and firm power that have to go hand in hand with the dramatic expansion of the grid. I mean, if we're really going to achieve electrification of, of almost all transport, certainly of personal transport and everything short of long haul heavy duty transport, which may be served by hydrogen in the long term, we're gonna to have to have a much bigger grid, more capable grid, much more renewable energy on the grid or decarbonized energy on the grid. That's gonna require a lot of transmission lines and multi-directional flows of power via a grid ancillary power services, software upgrades, things that we, are nowhere near being ready to do nor having invested in. It's going to require much more advanced forms of energy storage than at the moment we think batteries can provide. Now there's some promising advances in battery technologies. Let's see if companies like Form and others that are making big promises can deliver on what they're promising, but it might require other forms of long-term energy storage, pumped hydro that might require some form of hydrogen storage. There are other alternatives, compressed air uh, has been proposed, but we have to think a lot harder about that. And ultimately, you have to think about nuclear and natural gas as being considered as bridging solutions until we get to a point 
where renewables can be ubiquitous at scale and dominate grids without the intermittency problem. We're not there yet. In Europe, there is a current very politically charged debate about whether natural gas and nuclear should be considered green in the taxonomy of what's encouraged for investment and is eligible for subsidies and that sort of thing, given the official blessing by the Pubas in charge. And this is vociferously opposed by environmental groups of, of a certain flavor. But I think this is a mistake. I think if we don't consider natural gas with proper controls on fugitive emissions, right? That is state-of-the-art controls on emissions, uh, combined cycle gas plants. If you use proper controls and modern equipment, which is certainly viable and economic, you find that a switch from coal to gas in the emerging economies will be, uh, say, 50% on CO2. That is, it's half as carbon intensive to burn natural gas That is, as it is coal in many parts of the world. That's a viable option for getting off of coal. Whereas just saying, shut down all your coal plants, India, and just use solar panels, it's not a realistic solution. You're going to end up with no change. And so um, many people are letting the ideal be the enemy of the good, in my opinion. And similarly, nuclear, I don't think it should deserve any special subsidy. It's an expensive form of uh, boiling water, basically. But it, it's wrong to say that it shouldn't be on the table for countries that want to invest in that, especially in Eastern Europe, for example, for countries that don't want to be excessively reliant on Russian gas for geopolitical reasons, to somehow discourage them from looking to nuclear is crazy in my view. And so I think that those are the sorts of grown-up solutions we need to put on the table as we talk about the energy transition. Certainly a lot of room for us to come together and acknowledge that there's a need to move to responsible energy and to deal with the impacts of climate change and a need to, you know, as you've put it, you know, make sure the lights stay on for granny. I'm curious, you're finishing up your third decade at The Economist right now. If you look forward to where you'll be, you know, after another decade, I'm curious, you know, just from an imagination perspective, what article would you like to be writing 10 years from now over what may have occurred over the, the next decade? I hoped a decade from now I've got my feet up, you know, watching a beautiful sunset over island of Anguilla in the Caribbean uh, after a wonderful day of, of scuba diving in the wonderful reefs that are nearby. And uh, yeah, sadly, I fear that I'll be toiling behind my desk, uh, you know, writing yet another article about energy markets. But if in fact I do get my dream, it will be that rather than been having been bleached through the effects of acidification, uh, having the fish uh, choked off or patterns of uh, storm activity, uh, you know, destroy the Caribbean islands and other vulnerable areas that in fact are interventions, both at the policy level, but also in terms of at the individual level, that by getting involved, by making it clear to governments, but also to the companies that rely on us as consumers, that we need to get beyond this tipping point where we're that we're approaching to accelerate the transition to low-carbon energy, energy systems, and a, a way of life that still delivers good things that we all want. We all want that connection to each other. We all want the decent food and decent accommodations. But it doesn't have to be done in the kind of dirty and fossil fuel-intensive ways that it had been done in the past, thoughtlessly. We do it more thoughtfully, and we do it now with more ambition. I think we can be well on our way a decade from now towards that future. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. 
Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abex Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.